Today's Your Stories is brought to you by the Second City Training Center. Find your funny this week with a $20 improv drop-in class at the Second City Training Center in Chicago. Your first drop-in is on us. Use the code TESTDRIVE for a free improv drop-in any Sunday at 7 p.m. For more information, go to secondcity.com backslash TC or call 312-664-3959 to register. Your Stories is a wonderful opportunity to share all the highs and lows of being a nerd. You know that hobby you have that you don't talk to anyone about? It's a secret you don't like to share because it might make you feel weird. Maybe you're into something different. Uh, comic books, fantasy football, push-ups. Your Stories, to me, has been this really kind and welcoming space where people just have the guts to be really honest and they share their voices and their stories with everyone there, no questions asked. Uh, I've heard stories about all those things. Uh, Maybe not not a lot of push-ups. I maybe haven't heard a lot of stories about push-ups. The Nerdalogs is group therapy meets Toastmasters. I know there's always a place where my odd thoughts and unusual habits will be welcomed and championed in a warm, supportive environment by other nerds just like me. And what's fun is you'll see people in the audience one month, and then all of a sudden they uh, go up and tell their story. So your story becomes their story, and their story is your story, and then it's our story, and then it's a podcast, so it's everybody's story, and then you've shared it, and gosh, that's great, huh? And even if you don't think you're a nerd, you probably are. It's easily the most Midwestern thing I've ever been a part of. everybody. I'm Eric Garneau, and this is the Nerdalogs Presents Your Stories podcast. We've got a pretty cool episode coming at you today. Recorded this past Saturday night, you're listening to the first ever official Your Stories house show. This is all explained in the live part as well, but basically, about a month ago, Brian Willie joked that we could record an episode in his living room, and we explored that idea a little bit, and we made it happen. So this past Saturday, we brought a hand-picked crowd of storytellers and guests to Brian and Melissa Van Dyke Willie's lovely coach house for an evening of stories and songs. This episode, you'll hear from the aforementioned Brian and Melissa, plus Kelly Opalco, Mike Gifford, Dan Ennion with his show debut, and myself, who's also holding down the music solo this time. We've got a public Live Your Stories episode coming at the end of the month, uh, at the end of May, rather, that we'll release details on shortly. In the meantime, you'll be getting some more archival and extra episodes, which is cool. We're coming up on the one-year anniversary of the tour, for instance. Um, If anyone has a living room they'd like to turn into a venue, in the meantime, uh, I think you'll hear in this episode that that's a pretty successful proposition. So, drop us a line and let us know. We'll make another night of it. Here's the first one. Hello, everybody. Hi. Wow. This is already a better crowd than so many shows I've played at actual venues. Um, so for people listening at home, we are uh, in, in someone's house right now. This is the first official Your Stories house show, possibly first of many. Uh, a couple of our guests for the night graciously volunteered to let us record in their living room. So we're gonna. So thank you to uh, Brian and Melissa for having us here. Yeah. And they fed us. So already the the food and drink is so much better than pretty much anywhere we've been to. Uh, Cool. So most people here have seen this show before, but in case you haven't, so this is a storytelling live show and podcast that started seven years ago uh, from a comedy group that thought it would be cool to let other people in the audience tell stories that we would tell on stage. And uh, it's been going ever since then. We've been doing a bunch of pop-ups this year, so now we're popping up in your home. So beware. (laughs) Uh, the theme tonight is we always pick themes, and uh, this was chosen by Brian and myself. The theme is Thunderdome, uh, which I thought was very funny because we're in a very nice living room, and we're talking about Thunderdome. And uh, we always start with songs. You only get me tonight. I'm the only musician here, I, uh, so you're going to have to deal with that. But uh, I'm going to do the most obvious song choice possible to kick things off. Also, probably the most obvious film theme ever, this side of James Bond. Uh, get my note. Uh, yeah. Out of the ruins. Out from the wreckage. 
can make the same mistakes this time. We are the children, the last generation. We are the ones they left behind. And I wonder when we're ever gonna change it. Living under the fear till nothing else remains. You guys know what this is yet? We don't need another hero. We don't need to know the way home. All we want is life beyond the Thunderdome. See, I told you. Looking for something we can rely on. There's got to be something better out there. Love and compassion, that day is coming. All else are castles built in the air. And I wonder when we're ever gonna change it. Living under the fear till nothing else remains. We don't need another hero. Hell yeah, Mike. We don't need another way home. All we want is life beyond the Thunderdome. So what do we do? children's chorus comes in, but I don't have one of those, so I'll just do it again. perplexing to me that the actual lyrics are all we want is life beyond the thunderdome and that was a hugely popular song people who didn't know about the movie must have been so confused um that's fine that song makes me be the gay man oh my i'm glad that that is i take that as praise thank you mike um so we're going to keep things a little more casual tonight because we are in a living room. And uh, But I always like to try to kick things off with a Nerdalogs member when we do an away show. And tonight I'm the only one here, so you're going to get a story from me. Yeah. So it's going to be a little loosey-goosey. Um, I do want to say real quick, I did a tour last year, and there's like probably double the amount of people here as there were at some of our tour stops. So thank you. Brian's living room. Yeah, all right. Um, cool. So... Thunderdome obviously makes me think of battle. I mean, I actually, I haven't seen the movie, but I assume it's like this gladiatorial arena. Is that right? Yeah. So, okay, I know. I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, it makes me think of battle. It makes me think of, of fighting and, and war and all that fun stuff. And related to that, uh, this week, I, this quote popped in my head. You guys have probably heard that uh, history is, is written by the victors. Often attributed to Churchill, uh, possibly it was Machiavelli, I don't know, Google was very unhelpful on this subject. It could be eons old, who knows. Uh, there's another less well-known quote, it's so not well-known that I don't remember how it's phrased and thus couldn't source it. I don't know, maybe it's from Hamilton or something. But uh, yeah, something about, you know, we have to be conscious of who 
is telling the stories, who's, who's writing the narratives, who's telling our stories. So uh, I'm going to tell you guys a story about this dude, Dan, that I met uh, this week. Dan is a really talented uh, poet from England who happened to be in town for 10 days doing some festivals out here, and he is a friend of my friend Liz, and she connected us on Facebook and was like, hey, you should hang out with Dan when he's out there. I bet he'd really enjoy your company. You could show him around. So I did. Um, Dan was incredibly brilliant, and we had this really great conversation that made me put things in perspective that I never thought about before. Because, you know, even though this is a little hacky, we started talking about the differences between England and America. Uh, I felt bad at first for going down that road, because it seems like might as well just talk about the goddamn weather or something. But... uh, (laughs) Something that came up was just this idea that, you know, in, in Europe you have all of this this history around you, all these buildings and architecture that you just don't see in America, like, other than maybe even Boston, but there's nothing older than, like, 200... Yeah, Boston! <laughs> We're in Chicago, by the way, listeners. Um, nothing older than, like, 250, 300 years uh, architecture-wise. But Dan blew my mind with where he took that conversation, which I never thought about before. He said, also... America is the first major country to have the printing press available for its whole time in existence, right? Has anyone ever thought about that before? Because that's crazy. So we're the first country that's been able to tell our own story and like record it from the very beginning of, of our history. Not the first ever country, but like the first world power, because that's just that wasn't possible in the UK and Russia, China, India. None of that. There, you couldn't mass produce text. But with America, you always could. And that, that's so interesting to me because we are a country that seems so obsessed with our, our history, with our narrative. Like, you don't have to look too far in the news to see people who almost fetishize the initial text of our founding, right? What would the founding fathers do? Um, no other country on our scale has been able to set that down in stone so people can go back and fetishize. No one says, like, what would the original Britons have done when they came over to this land and fought off the Vikings and stuff like that? That's just not a thing in the UK. Um, they probably wouldn't have been that into, you know, rights for women and people of color either, but that doesn't matter because they didn't ever uh, write down in journals how they felt about things. Um, so that, that really blew my mind, uh, and I want to use that also to talk about kind of how we tell our own stories and how we tell other people's stories, and I'm going to get meta, so I hope you'll forgive me, but we are at a storytelling show, and I was thinking about kind of all the stories I've told on this show, and the first story I ever told on this show was actually about the person who connected Dan and myself. It was about my friend Liz. Um, once upon a time, seven years ago, when this show started, and I'm banking on the fact that Liz doesn't listen to this, by the way. If you do, Liz, I think you'll understand. Once upon a time, we weren't quite as close because we had like a very intense, and this is all in the story I told in the first episode. We had a very intense like summer flirtation, and then she moved to England and just kind of was like, all right, peace. I'm not that interested. I can't do this. See ya. And it really like broke my heart. And so I told the story about that. But in the context of what Dan said, I was thinking about, like, I told her story, and I think this is something probably all of us who take a mic are guilty of. Like, we tell other people's stories, and maybe, I don't know, like, we have to be careful about how we tell them, right? In the same way that, like, America, we do have this history, this text history, but we haven't always been the greatest about telling the stories of the marginalized in America, and that's something I think we're learning to do, but certainly not quickly enough. Uh I'm not saying that, like, Liz is a marginalized person or, or I, like, took away her rights in telling the story, but I think there's, like, an interesting parallel there. And so I just wanted to kind of ponder on, on what it means to tell other people's stories. And then to give me the perfect button to my musings literally an hour ago, like, I couldn't have planned this better, she messaged me on Facebook to say, hey, Dan and I played D&D today, right? And you were in the game. I'm like, What? She goes, yeah, he based a character on you after meeting you. So let me, let me tell you what Liz said about, uh, about Eric Thorncracker. <laughs> I think that was the name. Where are we? Yeah, Eric Thorncracker. Um, he is an agent of the Lord's Alliance, trying to spread good through strength and stability. He's an older dwarf, impressive beard, diplomatic as fuck. <laughs> And so what Liz, what Liz did while I was sitting outlining what I wanted to talk about and what's been on my mind, 
she messaged me telling me that she told a story about me in a collaborative storytelling game, which is like so fucking meta and weird and like Ouroboros, like the snake eating its own tail. And that's great. Like, I'm glad that she got to tell that story. I'm telling this story now, hopefully as like an apology for the story in the first episode. Like, we're tight now. Everything's cool. She introduced me to her very cool friend, Dan, who taught me a lot about the world. It's great. That turned out well. And I guess I just want to end this by saying that like, I, I hope, not that any of you guys are guilty of this, but I hope we're all conscious of the stories we tell about other people. And, and what, because when we're up here, you know, we're the ones writing the narrative. And just as the country is learning to write the narratives of people maybe it's done injustice to before, we all have to be conscious of how we write the narratives, not just of ourselves, but of other people's. But really what I wanted to say is that since uh, history is written by the victors, guys, if you come up here tonight, you're a winner. We're all winners. <laughs> Am I right? So that's what I wanted to say about that. And with no further ado, let me introduce our first real storyteller for the evening. She is a podcast and theatrical producer. Actually, she just told me she's the producer now of the Chicago Podcast Festival. So maybe hit her up if you want some favors or don't. I'm so sorry. Please welcome. <laughs> don't actually do that. That was terrible. <laughs> Speaking of what I just said about don't say things about people that you would regret. Please, please welcome to the stage, Kelly Opalco. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Well, on the note of apologizing to people involved in our stories, I never apologize, but I will right now. I apologize to Paul Breyer's brother. You'll find out why. Um, Okay. What's in a name? I've been pondering this subject recently due to an increase in the number of my friends who have become engaged or pregnant. My full name is Kelly Marie Lily Opalko. Opalko is Slovak for... I don't actually know. Um, In the olden days, people's last names were based on their occupations, which is why there are so many Millers and Smiths. So I assume that Opelko roughly translates to Pennsylvania coal miner. (laughs) Lily is my confirmation name. Choosing a name is a lot of power to give to an eighth grader, but it would also never have any practical application, except for being a bit in a storytelling podcast, so there's really no damage done with that choice. Marie is a family name. I still have no idea who in my family was named Marie. When I was in college, I had to be assigned a name for my foreign language courses because I showed up to Italian 202 my freshman year, and the professor said everyone got to pick their names, and they started in 101. Uh, This whole conversation happened in Italian, but I will do it in English for the sake of ease in translation. Um, So she decided she was just going to call me Chiara, which is uh, Claire. Kelly was too Irish of a name for my Italian class. Um, (laughs) Kelly is indeed an Irish name. I found that out when I was a kid. In the pre-internet days, I went to the library and found a book on the meaning of names. According to this book, Kelly is Gaelic for female warrior. That blew my eight-year-old mind. (laughs) That's what my name means? (laughs) Me. This made no sense, because let me paint you a word picture of what eight-year-old me looked like. I was chubby and could only wear extra large girls clothes from Kmart. I was a bookworm. I just received the first of my many pairs of glasses. And I wasn't allowed to play uh, catcher anymore for my fast pitch softball team because the speed of the pitch scared me too much. Um, But like, fuck it. I was way better at first base anyway, so, you know. Um, I couldn't understand how someone as weird and awkward as me had a name that meant something as mighty and powerful and significant as female warrior. Well, I was about to prove myself wrong. Uh, During summer vacation that year, my mom forced me to go to summer day camps, which is not uncommon with uh, indoor kids. She would drop me and my brother off at the city playground for a few hours every weekday with a lunchbox and a bottle of water, and we would be babysat by two women from the rec center, who in retrospect were probably like 22 years old and working there part-time. I preferred to hide in the shade of the pavilion and happily take advantage of the unlimited popsicle sticks, glitter, and tacky glue, um, while I assumed my brother was like trespassing on private property and breaking glass bottles somewhere nearby. Uh, On one fateful day, I agreed to play kickball with the other girls. For some stupid juvenile reason, the boys were refusing to play with the girls that day, so the girls had to fill the field with the JV squad, a.k.a. me and all the other craft corner kids. Um, On the way to the field, the boys decided that now they did want to play kickball, so Paul Breyer's little brother wrestled the ball away from the girl carrying it. I knew Paul Breyer, and Paul Breyer was the coolest kid in the grade ahead of me. And it made me really mad that his little brother was such a dick. (laughs) 
That girl was crying and screaming and clawing at him to try and get the ball back. And as he ran away from her, some voice in the back of my mind, it was really more like a feeling that came out of every fiber of my being said, destroy that fucker. (laughs) From the back of the pack, I made a beeline for that little shit and I shoved him to the ground. Paul's brother hits a tree, falls down, scrapes his knees, and he drops the kickball. I grab the ball, turn to run, but he trips me. As I curl up and refuse to let go of the ball, he pulls me back by the shoulders, gets me in a headlock. And I'm totally caught off guard. How dare he take me down so easily? By now, the other kids have come to help in the fight. I do the only logical thing I can think to do in that moment, and I bite down on his arm. I bite down hard. I bite down so hard, I draw blood. He pulls his arm away and runs back to the playground, screaming and crying. The crowd that had gathered around our fight backs away silently as I get up and dust off my knees. The other girls and I played kickball without interruption that afternoon. (laughs) Now, I don't necessarily think that this one exceptional event in my life proves that one's name determines everything about one's temperament and personality, but I will say this, it is pretty convenient that my initials are K.O. I regret my really bad introduction even more now. I'm very weak, and you are very strong and mighty. Thank you, Kelly the Warrior. Coming next, we have one of our wonderful hosts tonight. I'm so happy she opened our home to us, and this is, I think you said, your first time doing this, so everyone, please be super kind to Melissa Van Dyke. There is something about sitting at a table with nine other people, all of whom are trying to outsmart me and take my money, that is particularly exciting for me. It's the battle of wills, the strategic decision-making, and the metagame at the poker table that makes this game my favorite pastime. (laughs) The metagame involves understanding the mindset of your opponents, using their style of play against them, using your own position at the table to your advantage, leveraging what you know they think about your mindset and style to throw them off. And it's always, always about deciding what hand your opponent is holding, knowing the, uh, the pot odds of your hand against that hand, and making sure you are in the hand when your pot odds are 80% or higher every single time. This is how you make a killing at the game over time. But the basic rules are simple. You can imagine a game of poker. You're sitting there, your two hold cards are being dealt down in front of you. There are rounds of betting each time the dealer reveals more shared cards. The goal is to have the best hand when your money is in the pot and to fold when you don't or to bluff your opponent so they fold when you have the worst hand. Now, the metagame is much harder to learn, and that is why they say even a professional longtime poker player is always learning and honing their skills. Let me try to illustrate. You just sat down at a cash game. The cards are dealt, and you are first to act. You know this is a vulnerable position at the table, so it is important to look strong if you're going to play this hand. The problem is you just sat down at this table, you, so you have no idea how these opponents play yet. You can easily tell the big stacks from the small, but you don't know if they just won one big pot or have been pecking people off one by one all night long. Just remember, you can always play until you cash out or until you lose all your money. Some people often sit at a, po- at a table for over 16 hours without cashing out because the good players know the longer you're at the table, the more meta you can get. Welcome to No Limit Texas Hold'em Poker, people. <laughs> I fell in love with this game about 15 years ago when it became all the rage after a regular guy, Chris Moneymaker, yeah, Moneymaker, won the World Series of Poker for like 2.5 million bucks. My husband and a group of our friends started playing on a whim, and we all became obsessed pretty quickly. I remember thinking, well, if some guy like Chris could win without being a professional player, so could I. We read all the books. We started playing regular home games. We started playing regularly at a local poker charity event. We stayed up late into the night talking strategy and learning from our mistakes and practicing, always practicing. Then the whole crew decided we were ready for the big time, so we packed up and off we went to Vegas. 
The first day I stayed up all night, spending over 20 hours straight battling it out the Tropicana cash game, one $2 blinds. I got to the point where I saw a literal flow of the metagame. It was so clear to me. Every move someone made, I knew if they were bluffing or not. I knew exactly how much to raise one guy and when to fold against another. It was like a clarity of seeing into another layer of the world, a dimension that only exists when you are fully in the flow, coordinated perfectly with the metagame going on around you. I ended up cashing out with winnings of over 2,000 bucks, easily paying for our entire vacation on the first night. Oops. <laughs> yeah. I battled in several more cash games the next couple days, and then the last day, I found myself at the Binion's Casino in old downtown Vegas. I was so excited. This is where the World Series of Poker was played every year before it got too big to hold thousands and thousands of players that now take part in it every year. I felt like I was experiencing a piece of history, and a sense of belonging took hold of me. Lo and behold, there was a tournament about to start for $120 buy-in, guaranteed 10 tables and a reasonable blind structure. I was going to crush this. I paid my fee and took my seat, pulled out my personal weapon of choice, prescription polarized, polarized sunglasses, and started watching other players settle in around me. Gave the silent head nod to those brave enough to look at me. <laughs> and when they don't look at me, I stare them down. They can't see my eyes after all in these sunglasses. And try to peg them as a specific type plotting out how I will test my theory as soon as I get a chance on the battlefield. Because once a theory is confirmed, that is when I can start doing real damage. Sure enough, I was a strong contender and fought through the final table, landed in the top five for a payout. Once back home, we were on the hunt for more games. My husband and I ended up at places all throughout the city. Back, game, back room games, although not as cool as rounders, were really competitive. <laughs> People's houses, we had just met crazy people, cool people, and a lot of real fucking dickheads. <laughs> Poker seems to attract them like flies, so we got really good at learning how to deal with them. Ultimately, I found myself at a crossroads. It was now 2010. I had been playing for about seven years. I had done fairly well for myself on the scene overall, but I had just bombed out of a tournament where I had made it to the third day of a three-day tournament, and it was being televised. The knockout was a solid punch to the gut with an uppercut square to the jaw, as if I had not even been paying attention all these years. This guy took me out like I was a newborn to this game, and on TV nonetheless. Here's how it went down. I sat down at the televised table, having just been rotated in randomly from a different table. I am dealt a pretty good hand in mid-position, ace-jack of spades, and I raised. People folded until it came to this one guy who called. And then the guy on the button re-raised enough to put me all in. He had a much bigger stack than me. He knew the bet was exactly how much I had in front of me. He was testing me. But the only thought going through my head was I was on TV and didn't want to be knocked out so fast. I folded. Yes, and the flop came out, of course. I would have had top pair, ace came out. The aggressive guy bet, the other guy folded. So I only fo found out later while watching all of this on TV that he had nothing. But I, knew it, but I knew it as soon as I folded. I knew I needed more training. So here I was at the crossroads. My career was taking off, and it was the only reason I couldn't play more than a few hours at a time, as most games went way into the night. And my personality is such where I don't like doing things half-assed, an all-or-nothing type. So while I love this game and had been growing for several years, feeling this plateau knockout was the wake-up call I needed. I knew these other players were seeing that glorious flow at every table they sat at, where I needed way more ramp-up time each time I played. To me, I had two choices, either focus on my career fully or move to Vegas and grind it out with the pros. Extreme, that's me. <laughs> Luckily, my husband was on board with either decision. I considered my options for several months very seriously. I was so close to making that move to Vegas, but ultimately decided to focus on my career for now with a plan to retire in Vegas. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Melissa Van Dyke, everybody. I don't know if this is the right lesson to extract from that story, but anyone else really want to go to Vegas right now? <laughs> or like the horseshoe? I got a car. I'll drive us to the horseshoe after the show. 
I love poker. I didn't know you were a player. That's great. You would wreck me. I'm really good in casinos and really bad against my friends. So take from that what you will. You guys can probably read me really well. Coming next, we have another show first-timer, although certainly not a first-timer to performing. He is an improviser and sketch comedian, and he has a really dope Instagram page that has lots of pictures of his lovely dog. Please welcome Dan Ennian. Oh, I thought you were going to do like a very fancy like wrestling introduction. Yeah, I missed the entrance cue. I'm sorry. Hey, everybody. <laughs> that Instagram is Daniel Ennian. <laughs> It's my full name. Yes, I got it. <laughs> Lucky me. Lots of dog pictures and comedy. I'll start my story. Thunderdome. Interesting. So for this story, I will ask if you guys to recognize three things about me. Firstly, I have a very strong sense of justice. I know it sounds cheesy when I say it. I hate saying it, but it's true. My mom left my dad when I was little because he was a jerk to her and to me. He was a bully. I saw her being mistreated a lot, and that really stuck with me. So I don't like seeing people with less power being pushed around. I think it's because of that. So know that about me. Secondly, I cry very easily. So you can imagine me in school. I found myself in a lot of embarrassing moments, running into fights where a bully was pushing around some small kid. I would stand up to him and then immediately start bawling. You know when you've got that feeling, those feelings stuck in your throat? And you can't say anything? Yeah. <laughs> Nothing had happened yet. I hadn't gotten hit. I'm just standing there crying, protecting someone my size. Whatever, it worked. People don't like to fight the kid who already looks like he got beat up. <laughs> Inevitably, I'd be called a pussy and left alone to hyperventilate while the kid I had just saved comforted me. This combination did not result in a very popular kid. Getting not beat up and crying like a baby in front of all your friends tends to be remembered. Grade school and middle school were rough. I found my home in the theater kids. Thirdly, I did not escape my mom without some of the more stereotypical only child issues. <laughs> so it was me, an only child, and my single mom. My mom, along with teaching me to stand up for the little guy and to never let anyone call me stupid, taught me that I was pretty great. How else would she counteract all the negativity thrown at her by my father and at me by my father? So my mother would never let me leave the house without telling me how good of a son I was. You're a good boy. You're such a great boy. My boy's so good. My boy. This is a spot-on impression of my mother. I was the one that wooed uh, when Boston was thrown around, so she's got a pretty thick accent. You're a good boy. You're such a great boy. My good boy. You can do anything, Dan. You're one of the world's great boys. That's a quote. One of the world's great boys. <laughs> So humiliating, crying or not, I was feeling myself as a kid. It felt cool. So remember those three things about me as we start this story. Justice, vanity, and crying. Those are the pillars of my childhood. I went to UMass Amherst. It's a huge party school. It has frats, well known for drinking and partying. My dorm was called Pierpont. It was in Southwest, known as the drinking and party area of the drinking and party school. So I'm in my first month or so of college, meeting new roommates, meeting people in my dorm. Everyone is real fun and exciting, starting a whole new life with new people. You can be anything you want when you go off to college. And I wasn't going to be the weird kid who cried anymore. Awesome. So I developed some close friends, people I like, that I really connected with. But it's new and exciting, and everyone is my friend. I finally belong somewhere. I started dressing differently. I was really feeling myself. I, for the first time in my life, feel cool. I bought an American Eagle hat. <laughs> <laughs> it was brown and it was blue plaid on it and I love this hat I wore it every day you could wear hats in college that was a big deal <laughs> and I, th I think you guys are getting the picture of who I was at this time I'm 18 uh, give you a slightly better idea I didn't wear this hat backwards or forwards or to the side I wore it straight Twisted one inch to the left. 
I remember this because I would line it up with the side of my temple, so there was always a little bit off kilter. Please picture that guy. <laughs> what a douchebag. <laughs> my dad hated it too, so I wore it even more. <laughs> and one of those fall weekends, a warm weekend before being outside becomes a non-option in western Massachusetts, I found myself at a party at the Asian frat. It's just what you think it is. It's a full-blown fraternity at UMass that only recruits Asian men. That's it. It's an Asian frat. And they were having a party, so all the Pierpont crew was, grow- was going. We're at this party. One of my friends, we called him Deep Dish because he was from Chicago and he was fat. <laughs> it's true. I don't know. That's what we called him. He liked it. I don't know. We... S- <laughs> We, we still call him that. He's, he's not fat anymore, but he likes it still. Anyway, we're all hanging out in the kitchen. He runs up and says, Marco is about to get into a fight on the front porch. What? Hell no. I kind of know Marco a little bit. He lived down the hall, and I probably talked to him a couple times. Maybe not. I think I just opened the door for him once. Anyway, he's from our dorm. Hell no, right? I am already on my way out to defend Marco. I pushed through all the people in the kitchen, pushed through everyone in the living room, and I finally pushed my way out onto the porch, and there's Marco actively talking shit to an Asian man who weighs more than both of us combined. I grab Marco, move him down the stairs, and try to break up the whole thing. I get Marco down into the yard and look around, realizing that not all of my new friends had my mom. In fact, none of them did, because I was the only one out there. I did notice that Marco was very, very drunk, and apparently Deep Dish wasn't the only one spreading the news because dozens, not an exaggeration, literally dozens of Asian 20-year-olds were streaming out of the house onto the front porch. That was when I learned, oh, college is different. I got to know Marco a little bit better after this incident, and I never found out what exactly was said before I got out there, but... Sometimes people deserve to get beat up, and (laughs) sometimes it's your friends that deserve it. I definitely think I should not have been out there. I was on the wrong side. I don't know what was said or done, but I was suddenly in a huge fight and on the bad end. These guys were pissed off. I remember a long silence. It's probably just a millisecond, maybe less, looking up at a bunch of angry faces on a porch them looking back, and this may have been the adrenaline starting to scream, but I remember seeing more angry faces walk up out of the shadows of the trees of the yard. (laughs) And then I had my great idea. Run! I screamed and ran so fast down Fearing Street, which went back towards our dorm, faster than I had ever run in my entire life. As far as I was concerned, I had saved Marco, and he, if he didn't take advantage of the brilliant plan I had come up with, he was on his own. I'd gotten maybe about a thousand feet and was struck by absolute panic and stopped. I dropped my hat. And I did not think about it as long as I should have, because I was already running back for my hat. This is the Thunderdome part. <laughs> I'm sprinting back up Fearing Street. I pass Marco, who wasn't that far behind me, and had the momentary pleasure of seeing the most confused face I've ever seen. Second only to the Asian men directly behind him, who until a moment ago thought they were chasing me. I am now running directly back at them, and for a little while, everyone is confused and unsure of what to do. I'm the only one who knows what to do. Keep running. I have another great idea. I'll double down on their confusion and I'll scream a terrifying battle cry. (laughs) That lasts barely a moment because you can't scream and sprint at the same time. (laughs) So I basically go, "Ah," in someone's face as I run by them. (laughs) This effort renders me immediately winded. The confusion of my pursuers doesn't last long as I'd... As, I, as long as I'd have liked, and as I get to about the middle of the pack, they're figuring out what's happening and getting a few punches in. I'm in a fight now. Every time I tried to block one, I got punched from a different direction. Finally, I reached the front yard again, and there is my hat. 
there's my hat, trampled on the muddy grass of this poorly landscaped frat house. I have time to shake off the dirt and put it on, and am, I'm immediately crying. Already crying in this, fr in this front yard as soon as I stop running. <laughs> I look up at the front porch, and apparently all the members of this frat had ran after us because now on the front porch are all of my friends with very confused faces. From their point of view, all I can imagine is that all of the hosts of the party they were at just ran out of the house for no reason, mysteriously into the dark. A few minutes later, their friend Dan runs out of the dark, picks up his dirty hat, starts crying, and then says, And I'm funny, no more not, man! And then runs back into the dark. <laughs> At this point, the Fred has given up on Marco, and they are running back to their house. I am running back at them a third time. I no longer have any advantage of their confusion, and basically anyone within arm's reach of me, as I ran in the opposite direction, took a swing. Blocking was no longer a viable option. I just plowed my way through, crying and spinning and whimpering as angry, drunk Asian 20-year-olds try to pummel me. Finally, I was back at Pierpont, where I could cry in the shower and wash off all the snot, tears, blood, and dirt. But I had my hat. <laughs> I did end up having to tell my mom this story because I chipped one of my teeth and I had to go to the dentist. After I told her this whole story, she called me the world's dumbest boy. <laughs> Thank you. That's terrifying. My college experience was not like that, and I regret it. I'm glad, I'm glad you're okay. So, uh, this gentleman coming to the, the stageal area, uh, longtime friend of the show, fantastic essayist, storyteller, theatrical producer in Chicago. Also, I just found out, working on a book, so I want to hear about that. Uh, let's hear from Mike Gifford! Oh my god. Hello, thank you. Uh, 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 I think that the saddest image in the world is a man wearing tidy whities crying in the shower. <laughs> I called my mother in the middle of the night to tell her that, to see what she thought, and she wasn't impressed. <laughs> so uh, I also knew a guy, I used to hang out in the illegal uh, uh, card game, and there was a guy, uh, uh, I'll call him PJ, because those letters don't appear in his name at all. <laughs> but he got shot in the back of the head once, and my friend, who was the dealer for the game, she's like, look at the back of the head. You're like, yeah, that's, that's one hell of a scar he's got back there. And she said, well, thank God he drinks beer, because if he wouldn't have bent down to pick up his beer, that bullet would have gone straight through. <laughs> Uh, what else? Oh, and with the, and I once uh, was involved with a guy uh, named Ho Chi Minh from North Korea. And uh, I thought his name was Keith. I thought his name was Keith, but then he told me, no, I'm an insurance adjuster, and so I used Keith because uh, uh, I didn't want it to be, you know, uh, uh, confusing on the phone. My name is Ho Chi Minh. And my mother's from, from, uh, 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 from North Vietnam, that's in North Vietnam, and we immigrated to Canada because she was a mail-order bride, and then she divorced her wealthy husband and took a lot of his money, and then she married another wealthy guy and took all of his money, and then I dated him for a while, and Ho Chi Minh gave the best blowjob I've ever had in my life. <laughs> the best. <laughs> so I, I reckon I figured that's why they won the war. So... <laughs> Just guessing. Okay, so back to it. Uh, <clears throat> I've performed in a lot of unconventional places, such as garages, a roof, attics, living rooms, basements, and even once at a bathhouse where naked men watched while only wearing towels in between orgasms. <laughs> true, true. So I thank you, Brian and Melissa. 
respectful welcoming us into your home. Sidebar. Yeah, right? Clap, clap, clap. When I was in college, sidebar, when I was in college, we'd hang out all the time in homes that would inevitably be trashed and it was assumed as acceptable. Everybody hung out. A lot of hanging out when you're younger. Not so much when you're older. Well, on one occasion of late night stupidity, we all awoke to discover somebody had ejaculated onto the coffee table. <laughs> Bad form, even by our standards. <laughs> and we never quite figured out who was the culprit. I will say, as I reminisce on that jizz mystery, it truly is amazing to imagine that somebody had the fortitude to climax all the way from the couch on the center of the coffee table. I mean, at my age now, I'd be really happy to get halfway there. Well, as I look around this room, I figure we're all past that. Alas, and the sidebar, Thunderdome. <laughs> the first thing that comes to my mind when I hear Thunderdome is strong women. And how many women were primary mentors who shaped me? So if you want to blame somebody, blame a woman. Now, <laughs> going back to my grandmother who potty trained me, by leaving me at age two with my pants around my ankles crying for mercy as she closed the accordion door of the tiny bathroom, leaving me to relieve myself in the lavatory. It was a nightmare that has forever scarred me, but I am housebroken, so thanks. <laughs> I write my grandmother, who is now 95, letters every week to remind her of how much she screwed me up. Then, my dear mother, she made me read classic literature as a small child before I was allowed to watch television or play outside. Torture for me at the time, but I'll be grateful for her instilling those values in me. But a hug would have been nice. <laughs> There was also my 11th grade English teacher, Mrs. Sands, who taught us in class, don't be a legend in your own mind, to thwart our adolescent and later adult life egos. She was the first person I came out of the closet to, and Mrs. Sands' love and compassion laid the foundation that would shape who I am today. However, when she was introduced to my comedy, she said, you probably shouldn't be doing that. It's too caustic. <laughs> <laughs> then, Don Ann Lewis Hunter Rice Maddox, who was my boss at the Ohio Senate, Dawn, with all her eccentricities, showed me empathy, common sense in the real world, and how not to be a dick, no matter how important I thought I was. Dawn was also the dealer at that illegal poker game. <laughs> Dawn also told me the story of Donnie. Second sidebar, the Donnie story. So there was this guy named Donnie who lived in a, a, a trailer in Dawn's driveway. And Dawn was explaining to me, she was very West Side uh, Columbus. So, so, uh, so she was, uh, she, kind of white trash. But in any case, but I love Dawn. And Dawn was teaching me about different kinds of, of, of cocks and what to avoid and what not to. She had a lot of interesting, like one day when she was at the Ohio Senate, Dawn would wear these single-colored jumpsuits that had embroidery on them, and it's all marble in there, and you could hear Dawn clicking down the... And she'd go, what's shaking, bacon? And she'd always have these... So anyway, one day she was wearing this white jumpsuit, okay, and, and she turned to me and she goes, oh, shit, Mike, it's that time of the month. And she turned down, and, and I swear to God, it looked like somebody had stabbed her. <laughs> and we're in the, in the Ohio Senate, in the pillars of greatness. <laughs> and Donna taught me how that worked, that she's like, cover for me, I'll be right back. 
And so she went home and then she came back and she's like, oh, thank God, I even had time to shower. It was incredible. So Donnie lived in a, a trailer in her driveway. And, uh, and she said, Mike, I got to tell you, Donnie had the biggest balls I'd ever seen. They were like bowls balls. She go, they were balls. So she, she said, you know, whenever you tap balls, they kind of they move like they have a mind of their own. And I said, no. She's like, well, you will. And she said, but Donnie's balls were huge. You touch them. And so one day I was playing internet poker in my house, and Donnie walked in, and he was stark naked. And I saw his balls in his dick, and he goes, hey, you want some of this shit? And she goes, no, fuck yourself. And so she goes back, she goes, I go back to playing video poker. Well, I'm sitting there smoking my cigarette, playing poker, and all of a sudden, I feel this thing on the side of my cheek. And I realized Donnie has stuck his cock on my face. So I grabbed my letter. I lit that shit on fire. She goes, that's how you deal with that. And the sidebar. And I've known so many more amazing women in my life. Like my now retired Methodist minister, now self-reclaimed clairvoyant cigar smoking convertible driving amazing woman and mentor Deb Spear to the woman who taught me to cook and garden but mostly ought to be selfless named Dorothy Stritt and now even such women in my life as my friends Emily Forsey, Shanine Shelby, Phoebe Perry, Shelby Quinn, Lydia House and the dazzling lesbian Erin Diamond. I have been and am shaped by rudely elegant women. As a result I am a gold star gay, and the mere sight of a vagina could kill me. <laughs> well, considering the men I've brought willingly into my life, death by vagina may have been a better option. Well, I don't need another hero, check. <laughs> Because I have plenty of dynamic and powerful women in my life, and for that, I am ever so grateful. Thank you again for allowing me and all of us into your house, and I uh, am happy to have Eric back on stage. Thank you all. Mike. I love Mike, everybody. Give it up. That was so great. We have one more storyteller. He's the other host tonight. Uh, the reason this night came about is because at our last live show, he was like, hey, you guys should do one in my living room. I think kind of joking, but I was like, all right, let's talk about it. And then it came together. So this is so great. Um, the reason we kind of picked the theme is because when I came over here to see the place, we were just sharing stories and he told me this amazing story that is so good it's like the kind of story where like you know it's true but you still don't believe it and i think that's the story you're going to share now right oh. so please welcome to the stage mr brian willie yeah. wow. thank you and thank you all for being here uh this is this is this is fantastic uh great stories great people um this this story um is a story about, uh, you know, we go to, we do different things to learn things in an official way. Some of us went to college, some of us go to trade school, some of us take classes online, whatever. Um, and some of that sticks with you. But the real life experience um, oftentimes sticks with you in a much more vivid manner than, say, theoretical political science. <laughs> uh, my buddy Chris and I knew nothing about the south side of Chicago. The world ended at Congress Parkway as far as we were concerned. But my roommate and friend, Mickey, he was from some place called Hegwish. They had steel plants there, which I thought sounded pretty cool, but which he said gave the air a very particular, unpleasant odor. Mickey was the toughest guy I knew and is definitely in the top five I've ever known, even to this day. He'd grown up in a working-class Serbian neighborhood and gone to a Catholic high school called Mount Carmel known for its rigorous academics, but located in a very rough part of the city. One day, Mickey approached me, Chris, and my buddy Mike, and asked if we'd like to attend Fight Night, a yearly fundraiser held at Mount Carmel. Fight Night. He could get us in for free, as he was an alum, and told us we probably wouldn't get carded by the parents or priests tending bar, uh, as long as we dressed halfway decently and spoke in a courteous manner, which we could do. We were actually way more excited about it than Mickey was. He'd seen it before. I personally couldn't believe that we were going to go watch high school kids pummel each other in a boxing ring 
It sounded like something out of a, some 1930s movie about character building, or a kid not being heavy because he was your brother. <laughs> <laughs> the day came, but Mickey had left early to visit with his parents before the event. So the three of us idiot Northsiders loaded ourselves into Chris's Honda Civic, and we headed down to Mount Carmel High School in the Lawndale neighborhood. Somehow, we got lost as soon as we exited Lakeshore Drive, and I got my first non-academic, in-the-field experience of a poverty-stricken neighborhood in steep decline. The streets were full of potholes, the buildings had broken windows, the walls were covered in tags, the porches were crumbling. It was a stark contrast to Lincoln Park. You got the sense that the city had just abandoned this whole section of town. It reminded me of the streets in the movie Escape from New York. We didn't see any women or kids, but there were a lot of guys staring at us every time we slowed down. Eventually, we figured it out. The lake's right over there, right? So, and we found Mount Carmel, which is like this little oasis of learning and safety in an otherwise desperate place. Mickey gave us a hard time about getting lost and provided us with different scenarios on how that could have gone down for us if we'd had car trouble or stopped for too long to check our blanket-sized street map. <laughs> We walked in, and it was awesome. The whole gym was full of parents and kids, and a running track above our head had a sea of hanging tennis shoes, full of kids, a smorgasbord of sneakers. There was already a layer of cigarette and cigar smoke hanging in the air, and priests in actual priest robes were walking around hard-selling raffle tickets. You could buy hot dogs and popcorn, beer and cocktails. It felt like an indoor carnival with a boxing ring right in the middle of it. So Mickey explained that kids volunteered to box and were given a couple weeks of boxing training. They wore big boxing gloves, and the rule was three rounds or until someone started to bleed or cry or quit. I was like, this would never fly at my high school in Buffalo Grove, not in a million years. As Mickey predicted, the parents manning the beer and booze didn't cart us, and we started getting a nice buzz while scarfing down hot dogs and cheering for the kids. The priest pressed us hard to buy raffle tickets, saying stuff like, Come on, gentlemen, you go to DePaul. You must have a little extra left over. Buy a ticket. (laughs) We were actually pretty broke, but uh, we caved under the pressure and the goodwill feeling from the drinks and bought a bunch of tickets. We saw dozens of fights, most lasting only a round or two. Kids would sort of windmill their arms, or they'd punch like a rock'em sock'em robot. (laughs) And sometimes they'd make contact. A few times, blood spurted out of noses. But nobody got upset, and the whole thing was very organized in a medieval village harvest festival kind of way. (laughs) Then it was over, and the place cleared out in record time. A priest with an Irish accent, who maybe felt sorry about us buying all those raffle tickets, asked us if we could take the rest of the beer and a couple bottles of whiskey off his hands, as he had nowhere to store them. (laughs) It was the first and only time that I ever thought, hey, maybe Catholic priests are cool. (laughs) Because I had a very high opinion of that priest at that moment. So we took the beer and the booze off the grateful cleric, and we drove back to Hegwish with Mickey. We got lost again, briefly, even with our local guide, which should have been our warning that we'd had enough to drink already. Mickey took us to a rocky outcropping into Lake Michigan, and I saw the skyline from an angle that I'd never seen it from before. It felt a little like I'd traveled to a similar but alternate reality. We talked for a couple of hours, finishing the beer, putting a serious dent in the whiskey bottle. The plan was to head home soon, as it was dark already. People had to work the next day. Then Chris decided we should finish off the night with a joint, which sounded like a capital idea. (laughs) It was not a good idea. (laughs) Quality control on drugs was non-existent for us at the time, and that included marijuana. It was generally fine, but sometimes you'd get some weak herb, sensimia, more like nonsense, And sometimes you'd get some crazy, powerful strain grown by an original hippie in an abandoned missile silo. (laughs) This was apparently the missile silo strain. And it reacted powerfully with the beer and booze that we'd been consuming for hours. Suddenly, we could barely stand. Mike, in fact, was unable to stand and was gibbering like a madman. I started to get the fear, which is what we called it when intense paranoia hits you. (laughs) While Mickey and Chris just mumbled, "Uh uh-oh, over and over. Well, finally, Mickey suggested that we stay overnight at his parents' house. And while none of us wanted to meet his old country, no-bullshit Serbian parents for the first time while wasted, it still seemed like the best idea. 
So he drove slowly to his parents' house and said hello to his mother in the kitchen, who didn't seem thrilled, but was way cooler than my mom would have been if I had shown up at night with three drunks. Everything seemed fine until Mickey started talking to his mom in Serbian and then started raising his voice and then yelled something and stomped out, leaving us standing there in the kitchen with his mom. I thought, I thought my head was going to explode from how uncomfortable I was. We all mumbled, thank you, have a good night, and just walked out to join Mickey. He wouldn't tell us what the yelling was about. To this day, I do not know what that was about. Uh, he wouldn't tell us what it was about, but he suggested a brief tour of the southeast side to help us sober up. I'm sure it was interesting, but sadly, I have little recollection of this tour. If we sobered up at all, it was instantly replaced by exhaustion. Finally, Mickey had had enough, apologized for having to send us away, and had us drop him off. Mike had been passed out for a while in the back, and Chris asked that I help him stay awake and on target for this drive home. As an added bonus, a fog had rolled in. We found the highway, though, started driving, and we drove, and we drove, and then I saw a sign for Olympia Fields, and I knew we were going the wrong way. Not because I knew Olympia Fields was south, but only because I'd never passed an exit for it in my life. <laughs> we found a place to turn around and headed back north. Chris couldn't stay in his lane and really worried me when he said, Man, you have to help me drive. Everything looks like a cartoon. <laughs> that was not what I wanted to hear. I suggested we just stop at some motel and crash for the night, but he insisted he had to be at his job early, his crappy part-time job, and wouldn't listen to me about how he was going to be really late if we crashed and died. <laughs> then suddenly we started to recognize things, and pretty soon we were home. We left Mike sleeping in the car, and I went to bed, grateful to be alive and wondering how four educated guys could be so goddamn stupid. <laughs> Thank you. That was a that was a trend tonight: is educated people doing suboptimal things. Uh, I like it. So Brian was our last storyteller. Give it up for everybody. Yeah, what a fun time. This podcast comes out uh, every Monday on nerdologs.com, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, uh, wherever you get your podcasts, you can find this. This will be out Monday. Um, what else do I want to say? We do monthly shows. We're popping up all over the place. Uh, if you're listening at home and you're like, I want to put this in my living room, and you have like a living room that can fit people, that would be uh, awesome. Uh, what else should I say? Thank you all for being here. This was so fun. Yeah. yeah. Oh, the thing about Brian's story that blows my mind is like, High school kids just like punching each other for charity. That's that wouldn't. Yeah, you're. I mean, I went to a Catholic school, and I, if if they were doing that, they didn't tell me about it, which is fine because as we established, I'm weak. I would have been no use to them, no use in the ring. Uh, so I'm gonna move up a little bit so I can read these notes. So that's right. That, yeah, so true. So I played a song from the third Mad Max movie, Beyond Thunderdome. Uh, fun fact is the music for the first Mad Max movie was written by Brian May. Do you guys know what else Brian May has done? Yes, you do. Yeah, Brian May is the guitar player for Queen. And so I'm going to end with a Queen song. Uh, yeah. Improvised Star Trek has my music stand, so I'm like leaning over like a jerk trying to read these. I, th I, I think I got this. Can anybody find me? Somebody to love Each morning I get up, I die a little Can barely stand on my feet Take a look in the mirror and I cry Lord, what you're doing to me I've spent all my years in believing you But I just can't get no Somebody, somebody, can anybody find me somebody to love? I work hard every day of my life. I work till I ache my bones. At the end of the day, I take home my heart and pay all on my own. I go down on my knees and I start to pray till the tears run down from my eyes, Lord, somebody, somebody, can anybody find me somebody in love? 
try and I try and I try But everybody wants to bring me down They say I'm going crazy They say I got a lot of water in my brain I got no common sense I got nobody left to believe Yeah, 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 yeah No guitar solo Got no feel, I got no rhythm I just keep losing my beat I'm okay, I'm alright Ain't gonna face no defeat I just gotta get out of this prison cell Someday I'm gonna be free Lord, find me somebody to love Find Now you guys give me that bass line Somebody to love Find me somebody to love Find me somebody to love Somebody, somebody to love Find me somebody to love Can anybody find me Somebody to and everybody all very kind this has been a Nerdalogs production if you'd like to help make more things like this please visit patreon.com slash to donate today and go to www.nerdalogs.com for more cool stuff thanks for being awesome thank you all thank you all I am grabbot23548x